0: This morning is from Philippians in the New Testament, chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 10 to 20. Please open your Bibles to Philippians 4, verses 10 to 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Sounds like intro music, you know, as you kind of walk up. <laughs> um, well, good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Sam. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my privilege to get to preach uh, this morning. Uh, it's a wonderful privilege. Let me pray, and we'll get into um, what's ahead of us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father. Praying now to you makes a lot of sense because we're coming before you wanting to hear from you. We're wanting to come under your word and just hear from our God who loves us, whom we love, who has saved us and gives a, and lays before us the, the path of life and life abundant. And so please make that path abundant so clear to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series on biblical stewardship, looking at what are we to do with the things that God gives us, in particular, the things that God gives us that, in fact, He actually gives to everyone. And the idea being that there's probably, principle, there's going to be a unique way that Christians use the things that God gives us, as opposed to the rest of the world. So, We've looked at a few things. We began with time. We all have it. We all have a limited amount of it. How ought we as Christians to spend it? And then for the past four weeks, and including today, we have been looking at money and possessions, coming at it from different angles, different passages, trying to build up piece by piece a kind of biblical approach to the topic of money and possessions. So we we have established things like this. God owns everything but we actually don't have money. Like We are rightly considered and and described as stewards. That it's actually His, and we are looking after it on His behalf, but we ought to look to Him for how we ought to go about that. We've established that we are located ourselves in salvation history in the New Covenant era. (coughs) Pardon me. And that our identity is not people who have found their home and then need to just kind of settle in, this is it for us. But actually, we are pilgrims on the way. We are sojourners, we are exiles. That impacts everything about how we think about our money and possessions. This is not our home. We are citizens of another place and we live for that place. We can be radically generous now because we have a life to come full of abundant riches. The parable of the rich fool warned us not to find security in our riches. Why? Because there is coming a day where our soul will be demanded of us, then whose will our things be? We saw that godliness with contentment is great gain, that we have been invited into a joyful, happy life that is content. We can have lots, we can have little, but we have the Lord, we have enough. And last week, with Paul's word to the rich, it included instructions like this, we are to be rich in good works generous ready to share storing up treasures in eternity you know the saying um when it it rains it pours you know that saying when it rains it pours well it, feel, it might feel like that with this series, you know, we're not like a church that's really been known for hammer, you know, hammering on about money all the time and kind of have a big, gigantic offering talk every single week. But if you've come for the last four weeks, you might think, whew, when it rains, it pours. Like, they talk about money, they talk about money, you know, like, but I think that's been helpful, hopefully. It takes a while for the uh, kind of things to sink in and we're going at it this morning and you might be thinking, oh, okay, another, another sermon on uh, money and possessions, okay. not sure you needed to. Um, You know, like, uh, I don't think I've escaped the last four weeks without feeling some kind of conviction and guilt and um, kind of the Lord at work in my heart, but uh, okay. But what I want to do in this sermon is actually, in a sense, assume the last four weeks and ask the question, what now? So assuming that we have these dispositions towards our money, like it's not mine, and I just want to honour the Lord with everything that I have. And that this is not my home and I want, to, I want to give it away. I want to give it to those in need. I want it to, to have an impact in all of eternity. So if, if all those kind of things are kind of dispositions in our hearts because of the work of God's Spirit through His Word over the past four weeks, what now? Because you might look up after all of this and go, all right, I want to give. All right, where do we go? And, and pretty quickly, you will be inundated... And perhaps overwhelmed by the need. And go, oh, what now? You know, we live in the time of internet, social media. It feels like, man, like like if the good Samaritan's walking along the path and he sees something, it's like every need in the world is kind of put onto our path. Right now, of course, we're keenly aware of war. There's ways to give to that. Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, others. This year, internationally, there's been major floodings, North North India, China, Libya. Think about the recent fires that just swept through Maui, humanitarian crisis in so many countries. I go on my email and I check my email and Compassion have sent, and they said, there's another option, you know, another opportunity to give to this, another good cause, Emails from uh, ministries that work amongst the persecuted Christians around the world, and there is so much need for our persecuted brothers and sisters. I go to get groceries, and on the way into Woolies, there's a stall that's raising support for Starlight Kids. And then I go into Woolies and I go to do my checkout, and they say, "Do you want to round it up? Do you want to give to?" I don't even know what it was, but uh, yeah. Anyway, you can tell I said no, but it was a rounding up thing. And (laughs) I should have confessed to that. and, you know, that's another opportunity, isn't it? On social media, you log on. There's a friend saying, hey, could, could everyone please give to this? Uh, this family is in need. Or well, there's a funeral cost here. Are there people who could help out and give to this? And then you go to church, of course. You're reminded that, well, there are missionaries, it, both locally and internationally, that would be awesome to support. And then every week, of course, you get the giving well, here's the details, if you would like to give to Coomer Baptist Church. And on and on and on, you could go. It'd be an interesting thing to write down, in the last two weeks, how many opportunities to give and share what you have, did you have? And it kind of comes, often comes along with a bit of a, you know, it's not a not-so-subtle kind of guilt trip, you know, it's like, do you even care about children at all? You know, it's like... Do you hate old people? You know it's like do, do, do you you don't care about disease at all, do you? It's like, well, is this the is this the case? Like we have this no shortage of opportunities to give, no shortage then of opportunities to feel guilty that we don't give enough. When is enough? Till I have nothing left? You know, we can be guilty, feel guilty about having anything sometimes, you know. We were visiting um, a church last week, and it was, it was a great experience. But objectively, they have chairs that are not comfortable, right? And we sat on them, and you might think, our chairs are not that comfortable. Look, our chairs are like recliners. You know? <laughs> it's like, trust me. And, um, and the kids noticed it, and they mentioned, oh, these chairs, not comfortable. And I, I, I tried to help them out by immediately saying, well, you're lucky to have a chair. You know, back when I was a kid, we sat on the dirt. You know, we had dirt. You were lucky if you had grass, right? And the lucky kids got a brick and they sat on the brick and that's what it was like back when I was a kid. You know, just trying to help them, you know, trying to help them feel thankful and and guilty for having a chair. Is that, you can get there, can't it? It's like, should we have chairs? You know, like, I mean, some people in the world don't have chairs. Is it too much that we have chairs? Should we all sell these chairs? We could all sit on the floor, couldn't we? For the sake of the gospel? I just listened through a new book by um, Kevin DeYoung, Um, and it has a great title, it's called this, Impossible Christianity. Subtitle is this, why following Jesus does not mean you have to change the world, be an expert in everything, accept spiritual failure, and feel miserable pretty much all of the time. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? Because if, if there's any, like, category where you might be like prone to go, okay, I think I've got to settle into a kind of sense of guilt and feeling miserable all the time. It's our money, isn't it? It's our money and possessions. Is it ever going to kind of be enough? Will I always just feel like I'm sitting in constant failure? But then you read in our passage, I think it's verse 18, Paul describes the Philippians' use of money and he says this, it's a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. God looks at this church, the way they use their money, and He says, you're doing excellent. He's so pleased, so happy. So I, I actually hope, really hope that this is kind of a wonderful thought to you. It, it, it certainly is to me that there is such a thing as obedience to God, which is not perfect, it's tainted by sin, it's full of failings, and yet it is still genuine, sincere, heartfelt, that your conscience can be clear and it pleases the Lord. I think I can forget that. I think I can forget that. I can fall into and it can sound pious, or as I everything I do is just rubbish. Even my best deeds are filthy rags, you know. And that's all it is, and that's how I'm going to live my Christian life. Constant failings. Because sin taints everything. But the Bible describes people like this sometimes, like, like Job was a righteous man. He's not a perfect man, but he was a righteous man. Luke 1.6 describes John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, like this, it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's awesome. I would love that to be true. It's actually possible, brothers and sisters, to live in such a way that God actually does say at the end of all the things, looks at you and says, well done. Like, well done, good and faithful servant. And that includes how you use your money and possessions. You can actually do very well in this area. The 1689 Baptist Confession summarizes this point, I think, like really, really wonderfully. And on a chapter on good works, and here's a quote from it. It says this, Good works also are accepted through Christ. Not as though the believers are in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but because he looks upon them in his Son and is pleased to accept and reward that which is, that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Look that. Weak, imperfect, but sincere. And God is pleased. And rewards it. That's why we often try it, um, in our sermons and I hope it's, it's, it's noticed, but we try to encourage you, say, "You're doing well in this." Like as a church, you're doing really well." Nathan did it last week when he got to the good works part, of being rich in good works. He said, "I wasn't here, but I heard it." And he said, "You're doing really well. I can look out here, I can go, "There, there are some of you. You are so rich in good works.' I'm not saying you're perfect." But he's saying, you're doing well. Praise God for that. This is how um, parents treat their kids, isn't it? You know, um, it would be a pretty cruel parent which just picked up on the imperfections in a, in a sincere effort and just wrote off the whole thing. You know, the kid's trying to do their homework and it's spelling, right? And they're just doing all the spelling words and they got it pretty much all right, except they switched an E and an I, you know. And if you just was like, kid's an idiot. You know, just chucked it away. That would be actually really cruel, really mean. No, you accept it, imperfect as it was. You say, that was sincere and good job. Here's a chocolate or something like that. One helpful biblical principle is actually the principle of moral proximity. Kevin DeYoung talks about this, which says that essentially it's a moral proximity. So the idea is that the closer you are to the need, then the more morally responsible we are to meet that need. Does that make sense? That doesn't have to be just geographical, that can be relational as well. So if my parents jet off and they live on the other side of the planet, but they come into great need, I think I'm morally responsible to, if I, as, as much as I can, help them. Why? They're a long way away. They're my parents, I'm their son. I was living in um, Melbourne and, and across the street from us was an elderly couple and, and, and the wife became sick with cancer, was dying and eventually did in fact die. So they're my neighbor, they're like right across the road. I think I, I had a moral responsibility, a moral obligation to go over there and pray with them and help them and do whatever we could to to kind of minister to all of their needs in that time. I did not feel the same pressure to do that to every person in Victoria with cancer. I think that's okay. And you can, of course, go for it. But I think it was sinful. But I think it would have been sinful as the Christian in that street to kind of turn a blind eye and not meet someone's need right on my doorstep. So Kennedy actually points out the differences between a couple of passages. So, so think about 1 John 3, 17. Now listen to the weight of this verse. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a rhetorical question. It's actually a statement. The the love of God does not abide in someone who does that. They have the world's goods and their brother, so that is proximity, right? Their brother has need and they close their heart to them. How could you possibly say the love of God is inside that person? You couldn't. But then compare it to 2 Corinthians 8, 8, where Paul wants the church to give to the needs of another church, in fact, the church in Jerusalem. And Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that your love also is genuine. So he wants them to give. He's saying, I'm not saying this is a command. This is, an, this is actually an invitation to do this. That's different to 1 John. And I think the difference is something of moral proximity. If they were in the church, you, you should be meeting this need. What are you doing? It's okay to have priorities. So, so, so think about Galatians 6, verse 10 says this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See that? So you, you need opportunity as you have opportunity. So the opportunity has to be there. Do good to everyone when you have that opportunity. That, that requires some proximity but especially to the household of faith, especially to your brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's closer. Also, another principle, just to add to the, try to lower the weight of like feeling like we've got to meet every single need. There is a primary um, focus in our giving in the New Testament to our local church. So, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14, Paul says this, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, obviously, who, where would that living come from? Well, likely, probably, the people who were receiving that preaching of the gospel. So, Galatians 6 verse 6 says this, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Timothy five seventeen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But I just don't think that it's going to be like, it would be super surprising that in the New Testament that the, the focus of a Christian's giving would be to their local church. But I don't think that's surprising because on a, on a number of fronts, there is proximity. You know, like these are... This is my family. You know, like I look around this room. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. These are the ones who we have said together, hey, I'll, I want you to watch over my soul. I am obligated to you. And I will do the same for you. So we are close. Like we are, we are quite literally, biblically speaking, we are family. And it's where gospel ministry happens. So it's an important course, right? Where The gospel is preached, people are baptized, the Lord's Supper is taken, people are discipled. And to the Christian, you think, these are the most wonderful things in the world. These are the most glorious things in all of this world. And so it's natural that we want to kind of give our money to that kind of thing. You know, there's a there's a normal dynamic, isn't there? You see that happen regularly where someone, you know, through their journey in life, and maybe you've been in this kind of situation where you've been particularly helped by a a a charity or say a particular hospital that 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 you needed that kind of treatment or someone in your family needed that kind of treatment or a particular kind of community service that it was so helpful to you and so when you kind of have passed through that stage in your life or or perhaps survived by others depending on what happened that often that that family become incredibly invested in that thing hey like, they'll, 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 they'll want to raise awareness of the research that's going on in that area. Or they want to start foundations. They want to or just raise money, right? They'll do, like, I'm going to walk 10,000 kilometers to Darwin and back and, and, and just try to raise money, whatever it is. You know, so because they become incredibly invested. And the Christian, the similar thing happens. It's like, I was once under, I was once a child of wrath. I was once an enemy of God. I was once unforgiven. I was once headed to an eternity of hell, and then one day someone shared the gospel with me, because faith comes from hearing it, and somehow it happened, Where, whatever the avenue, someone shared the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for my sins, that I could be forgiven, that He rose again, and that by repenting and putting my faith in Him, I can have eternal life. I can be reconciled to God. I can have eternity with Him forever and ever and ever. That This is the greatest news in all the world. And so the Christian naturally just turns around and goes, I want to invest in that. That is so important. The whole world, my, whole, my family, my neighbours, my community, the world needs this. And so naturally just come incredibly invested in those kinds of things. And the church is a sure investment. It's only the church that Jesus says, I'm going to build it. Only the church. I'm going to build it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is a sure investment. It cannot lose. And the church, when you think of the church, I don't know, it's an ordinary thing, but it is at the very center of God's plans to establish for himself a people on earth. It's how the Great Commission was fulfilled. Do you think about how it played out in Acts? Go into the world, make disciples, baptize, teach them to obey. So they go and they go into a town and they, teach, they, 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 they preach the gospel. People get saved. And what do they do? Churches planted. And they're established and they're organized. And they, they come together to watch over one another and care for one another. And, 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 and eventually, often, they send out more. They send out others to share the gospel. And, and then there's gospel shared and people become Christians. And then they establish another church. Because God is not wanting to just save individuals. He's wanting to save for himself a people made up of individuals, so the church is not that cool, right, our brochures aren't that flashy, really, I don't even know if we have brochures, we don't need brochures, we don't have great advertising, you know, give to this, all of that kind of thing, and it's pretty ordinary stuff, you look around, yeah, it's pretty ordinary stuff, We have got to pay for light bills and, you know, utilities, things like that. But it is the church that Ephesians 3.10 says, the manifold wisdom of God, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So I hope that's been helpful. You might be thinking, I think he's forgotten about the passage. I've not forgotten about the passage. We're actually going to fly through that passage right now. Um, And it all kind of ties together. I think there's similar themes going on through it. It is for us, I think, this passage an example of surely imperfect, but actually God-pleasing, Christ-exalting, sacrificial, and God will reward it generosity given for the essential work of the gospel. So the main premise, if you know the book of Philippians, the main premise is we, Paul says to the church there, we are partners in the gospel. Like we strive side by side in the gospel. Just just remember that, that, that when Paul's going out and doing all of this ministry, it's not that he's the guy doing the gospel and the people are doing nothing. No, they are together partnering in all of it. So the first thing Paul says to this church in Philippi, after he greets them, he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's just a, a wonderful letter. Like, read it this way. It's just full of love, both from Paul to them, them to Paul. He says a couple of verses later, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see, it's like, man, that's like gushing, you know. It's like, I love you guys. And they love Paul. But they don't just love Paul. I think they love the ministry of Paul. They love what Paul's doing. They love that the gospel is being preached unapologetically, but compassionately, with love, and it's compelling. And Paul's going from town to town. They love the gospel, and they love Paul. And they just want to give to that. They have become partners in the gospel. So that's the context for our passage that comes in chapter 4. They have been partnering with, with Paul in the gospel, and one of the ways that they partner with him is financially. So verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10, says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul just breaks out in joy. In the fourth chapter, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Why? Why? because they have their concern for Paul, it says, has, has revived. That's actually a, a kind of rare word, a Greek word that he uses there, and it's an agricultural word, and it actually means like blooming. It's like springtime. That's what he's saying. He's like, you know, when, when it comes to like our partnership in the gospel and our concern for one another, it's like springtime. You know, when you gave that gift to me, and I just rejoiced greatly, and he, and he, and he clarifies, he's like, I know that you cared for me the whole time, you know, it's not that now you're, now you're concerned. You've always been concerned. You just didn't have an opportunity whatever, whatever, for whatever reason. We don't know. But they had an opportunity and then they've given to Paul and he's like, Man, it's like springtime for us in our relationship. In verse 11, he gives another clarification. Just so, you, know, you notice when people talk about money, they just want to clarify and clarify and clarify. I'm not saying this and I'm not saying this. And Paul clarifies again. He says, not that I'm speaking, verse 11, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he's it's, it's just clarifying. It's, like not, it's not that I was like begging for you to give me money either. Like I was okay. I'm not joyful right now because, and i got some money, you know, it's like... I'm rejoicing greatly because I am a rich man. He's in prison. He's like, I'm a rich man. I get to order burgers and whatever. You know, it's it's like that's not, he's not not excited by that, is he? He says, I'm not speaking of being in need. (laughs) But that's what he says first in that verse. Then you read what comes next and you're like, oh, what, how does that work? I'm not speaking of being in need. Then he says, but I've been brought low. Speaks about being hungry. He's had hunger, and then literally the last word of verse twelve is "need." Like I faced need, so it begins with I'm not talking about being in need, but for real, I've been, I've I've faced need. How's that work? Well, because one is like a physical, practical circumstance, and one's a spiritual reality. He could know need without becoming needy. He could have less, but he was okay. Why? Because of what he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. And contentment is not a practical circumstance. It's a spiritual reality, rich or poor. I think it's this that actually allows Paul to just thank them so wonderfully, because he's not trying to get more out of them. He doesn't have like this kind of secret agenda. I loved how you gave me money. I've got a few more things and a few more things going on. And if you could just like dig a little bit deeper. No, he's not trying to get anything more from them. I'm not like a prosperity preacher on TV going, hey, you know, I've been thinking I really need a third jet. You know, that's what my ministry really needs. And if you would just dig a bit deeper and sow a seed, then you will reap your own riches. He's not doing any of that. No, He's content. So he just gets to rejoice in them and their generosity to him without trying to get anything out of them. And so it's Paul's contentment that's in the next context. that is the context for the next verse, verse 13. Famous verse, "I can do all things through him who strengthens me." So you notice what the context is not. It is not about you reaching your truly wonderful and great and awesome potential. I'm sure it is. It's just not what this passage is all about. In fact, it's not about your self-empowerment at all. Because where's the empowerment come from? It's the Christ who strengthens me. So He enables me to live with much or little, and I'm okay. I can, do, I, can, I can handle all these things because I have Christ, and He is enough. He says, verse 14, "...it was kind of you to share my trouble. I just love sweet verses like that. It was kind of you. You shared my trouble. Kindness is kind of lost in our day. I, I love the word kindness. You, you know, and it's hard. To, I think it's like a hard thing to define, but you know it when you experience it. You're like, oh man, that person, they are just, they're so kind. They're so loving, compassionate, self-giving, like always caring. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, to be kind. And Paul says that you were kind when, when what? When they, they showed action, they shared in his trouble. They shared the burdens of his, min, of his ministry. They said, Paul, you have needs and we want, to help, we want to help carry those burdens with you. He's like, that was so kind. Verse 15. And you Philippians, yourselves, you know that at the beginning of the gospel, like at the beginning of his work amongst them, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. I don't think he's like trying to have a go at all the other churches, those guys. But it's like, it just encourages, like you were, the, you were the ones. They didn't send Paul. They were not Paul's official sending church. They just loved Paul and they loved the gospel and they wanted to give towards him. Paul goes, you were the ones who did that. Right? To, to Paul, he's showing, "This is like this giving and receiving, like this wasn't just a financial transaction when you gave to me like that. This was like friendship. This was, this was, this was, This was kindness, concern, care. You were loving me. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, he says, which is still, it's in Macedonia, right? You sent me help for my needs once and again. So I didn't didn't, didn't wait till he left Macedonia and was going to be in need somewhere else. He was in Macedonia, right? He might've been being provided for there, but they're like, let's provide for Paul. And one of the things things we know in Acts is that he wasn't actually in Thessalonica that long. So it just shows the urgency. They're like, oh, he's there? Let's send him money. We have opportunity. Let's get it to him. And how many times? It just says once and again. Like, it's just like, let's give it again. Paul has a need. Let's get, let's let's help him out. Oh, he has another need. Let's send him some more. Oh, he has another need. Let's, let's, let's help him out again. Verse 17, I think, is just amazing. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I don't know if you know this song, it uh, came out a while ago, it's by a singer named Jessie J. And um, she sang, and she said, it's not about the money, 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 we don't need your money, 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 we just want to make the world dance. And you can kind of see what she's saying, isn't it? It's a good point. It's like, for me, it's not about the money, not about money, I've got a bigger priority, I just want the world to dance. It's a noble cause, isn't it? It won't work. I'm not gonna dance. But Paul might go like that. He go, look, it's not about the money. I don't need your money. But we do want the world to know the gospel. We do want the fruit, Paul says, right? So so I seek, he says, it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He says, I'm so glad you gave. But not for my sake. Actually for your sake I'm glad you gave. Isn't that bizarre? He's rejoicing you gave to me. And I'm so glad for your sake. He's so glad for the fruit that's 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 being reaped because of their gift. Paul's there on the ground. He's seeing the fruit that's going on because of their gift. He's seeing people are getting saved. Churches are being planted. People are being baptized. People are being discipled. and Churches are being organized. They are loving one another. Like, I'm seeing the fruit that is coming from your gift. And he says, it goes to their credit in heaven. That's amazing. Paul's like, not even in the picture. You gave to me, but the main thing is the fruit and all the treasures that you're storing up for yourself in heaven. You're storing up credit. The commentator Peter O'Brien writes like this. He says, The picture painted by the accounting metaphor is of compound interest that accumulates all the time until the last day. The apostle has employed this commercial language to show that he has set his heart on an ongoing permanent gain for the Philippians in the spiritual realm. He has his heart set on their eternal gain. That's why he's so glad they gave to him. It comes back to the, 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 the greatest investment, the most sure investment that you could ever make is the things of the kingdom of God. Uh, Bobby Jamison uh, wrote a, a little pamphlet. It's all like, why give to the church or why something like that? It's on the bookshelf, yeah, on the... Connect desk. So it's a little pamphlet. Why should I give it to the church? And um, he describes a scenario. Like, you just imagine if, if you... He says he did run into um, Jeff Bezos, you know, around that time of starting up Amazon. Can you imagine? Just imagine you ran into Jeff Bezos. Was, I think it was 9, 1994. Like, early 1994. He hadn't quite kicked it off yet, but he was talking to him and he's like, I got this idea, Amazon, you know. We'll see how it goes. And, um, and he goes, but if you like to invest in it for a little bit, like, you can have a stake in the company. And if you did, you were like, "Ah, oh, I'd have got like a thousand bucks. Here you go. Well, that would be worth, I did the sums, I know, I forget it. I think it was like 13-something million since 1994. You go, that's, um, that's so that would, that would get you like 1% of the company or something like that. That's, um, if that happened, would you be like, Jeff Bezos, he was lucky I was there. <laughs> Wasn't he lucky that I invested? Lucky man. No, you'd be like, I was given the opportunity of a lifetime. I got to invest in something that reaped insane rewards. And the Christian is invited to invest in something far greater, that the returns are far greater than Amazon. But investing in the things of the glory of God and the kingdom of God and the salvation of souls that will redound in eternity in rewards for you. It accumulates, he says. Kent Hughes writes this he says, The truth is, the only money that we will see again is that which we give away. And that money will return with compounded interest. Isn't that an amazing thought. You don't take anything with you, but the money you do see again is that which you gave away for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, I'm so glad you gave. I'm so glad you gave, Philippi. and It's got nothing to do with me. But it has everything to do with the fruit bearing in the lives of people and the credit that is going into your eternal account. Amazing. Verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. He knows how he describes it. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So first of all, he says it's a fragrant offering, literally, literally a fragrant aroma. It's drawing on imagery from the Old Testament, isn't it? When, when the priest would offer the, the burnt sacrifices and the aroma would, would go up to God. It would talk about like um, God is pleased. He would, he, would, he, would, he would smell, if you like, the, the, the offering, the aroma of the offerings. I don't know if, I don't think it's like literal. I, you know, I don't even know how good the burnt offerings actually smell. They probably smelled good, cooking meat. But God's not actually after just an experience of smelling meat. No, it's because of what's going on there. You're sacrificing to me. As long as it's not hypocritical and you're, you know, the, you know like he, he judges that kind of thing. You know, when you, you don't care about the poor, but you're just offering this and it's all perfunctory and it's all formalism. But, but if the heart is there and you love the Lord and you're offering your first and offering your best and it's genuine and it's sincere. God says it's like a fragrant offering. God says that smells really, really good. He uses the same language of smell for his people in Ezekiel 20, verse 41. It says, As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. It's like, oh, I was going to like, I could smell you coming, my people, you know. I could smell you coming. It was so pleasing to me. You know, how often do you say that? I smelt you coming. And it was a good thing, you know. Um... Now smells like smell is like it's an intense one of our senses isn't it like 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 we we either like enjoy being in a good smell but if we're in like a bad smell we want out of that like super quick you know we spend a lot of money trying to enjoy just avoid bad smells you know deodorant i looked it up 30 billion dollar industry in just america deodorant we spray we got sprays in our toilets make sure that doesn't spread Air fresheners in our cars, lavender in the sock drawer. There's something about smell, hey. I'm convinced that KFC have like fans that blow the smell of like chicken out into the road and just draw me in, you know. So it's not my fault. Paul says, God smells the aroma, Philippi, God smells the aroma of your giving to the work of the gospel, And says, it's fragrant. It's fragrant. It's like the perfect perfume, if you like. Do you know that God smells your giving? You didn't expect to hear that today. God smells your giving. I wonder what it smells like. But then he says, it's a sacrifice acceptable and it's pleasing to God. See, what they gave to Paul was a sacrifice. It was sacrificial. Like they went without. They didn't just give out of their surplus. They gave Sacrificially, it really costs them. I, don't remember, I can't remember who said it, where I read it, but you know, the, the, the phrase, if there's no sacrifice in your sacrifice, it's not a sacrifice. We ought to sacrifice. And theirs, when they gave their sacrifice to the Lord, to Paul in the ministry, it says it was acceptable, it was pleasing to God. See, it was Paul who received the gift, but this transaction was not just horizontal. It was vertical. Like, like they literally gave it to Paul, but it like, it was an offering to God. Actually, like you give, it's like it just encourage. When you give, you're not actually giving to Coomer Baptist Church. It's not like it's not just that. What it is is, it's like an offering to the Lord, pleasing, acceptable, a fragrant thing. That God says, I enjoyed that. That pleased me. He put a smile on His face, if you like. And then finally, verses 19 to 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you give generously, if you begin to give sacrificially, you might like, just hesitate and wonder, but will I be okay? Like, like, will I be looked after? And I think Paul's saying, you man, The way you have supplied my needs, God will supply your needs. Just like that. I'm well supplied, you will be well supplied. Because God, with all of his riches, who has never known lack, who has always been infinitely, abundantly the owner of all things, he'll, he'll look after you. He'll look after you. Especially in Christ Jesus, do you see? The riches in Christ Jesus. You're going to have more of him more of the revelation of Christ in your life. You know, giving is an act of worship. You know, we we draw near to the Lord in all of our acts of worship, our obedience to the Lord. In our prayers, we draw near to the Lord. In our singing, we draw near to the Lord. In our coming before His Word and reading it, we're drawing near to the Lord. So also when you offer up your finances, your money, when you give, you're drawing near to Him. He will bless you. He'll bless you with more of himself. There's no promises for those who are stingy and hold back. So that's the passage. Let me just wrap up in, a, in, in just a couple of minutes. So, why are, we done, why are we doing all this talking of money and possessions? Right, it's week five. Why? It would be absolutely no good if it was just because we're saying we have some needs. I have some, we have some personal needs. No, we are content. We are absolutely content. It is not, and it would be terrible, if it was to add impossible guilt on your life. You're always going to fail. You'll always be faithless in all of this. You'll always be struggling. No, but it is to say you can truly please the Lord with your money and your possessions. You can do fragrant offerings that are pleasing, they're acceptable to God, and ultimately, this is what we seek: we seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's why. Oh, for more fruit, that increases to your credit, in our church. And not you long for that? She you long for more fruit? More people hearing the gospel, more ministries to care for, more, more, just, just more, more discipling, more holiness more churches being planted, more people being reached, and the spread of the glory of God. do you long for more of the fruit? And brothers and sisters, that increases to your credit in heaven. Praise God. I keep coming back to, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Paul Tripp, what he said, when he said money, the reason to talk about money a lot, and the Bible does talk about money a lot, is because it uniquely has the ability to fund that which is important to us. You know, what what is important to you? It's not that hard to find out. What are you funding? Yourself, different things. Money tells us that. You know, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Isn't the Christian's treasure, like in the things of the gospel, primarily, first and foremost? Isn't our goal to seek first, what, the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Then all these things will be added unto us. By giving to gospel, I think we're declaring, I could not have put my money anywhere better than this. I can't think of a better way to use my money than to give it to gospel-type ministry. It's declaring how good God is for His honor. You remember Malachi 1 verse 8? We looked at this last year when, when, when God said, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer... Those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of those? So you give him nothing. If you give him like, you know, these animals that they were offering, the blind and missing a leg and all that, like, just give it to the Lord. You wouldn't give that to your governor. It says something, like our giving says something about the value, the value of God, the value of the gospel in our lives. Brothers and sisters, let's be partners in the gospel. And that includes in our finances. For each one of us, and corporately, it is very possible, and by God's grace will happen, that in the end, we will hear these wonderful words from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your your word that gives life. We thank you for your grace, which receives our deeds, imperfect as they often are. But oh, make make our sacrificial, generous, overflowing giving. I pray that it would be a fragrant offering to you, pleasing and acceptable, that we might know the pleasure of our God in the way we use all of our money and all of our possessions.